So we come, up, come to chapter 21, and David is on the run now. And he first, this is, we got two basic stories here, okay? Two, two things, and they're pretty interesting. I want you to think about it like this. I, actually, I got this idea from um, someone, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, who outlined the chapter <clears throat> using the theme of desperation, which I think is a good way of looking at this chapter, desperation, because this David we read about in chapter 21 is so unlike the David we read about earlier. The David who stood out there and said, who dares defy the armies of the living God? Who is this, this, you know, this nine feet plus tall guy out there who dares defy the armies of God? Who, who, who's going to do that? I'll take him on. I'll teach him who's in control. That, that David doesn't look a whole lot like this David. <clears throat> Something's changed. And what's changed is David has had now several months, if not longer, where he's been fearing for his life. And now he's gotten to a point where I think he just doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't have anybody to go to. <clears throat> he's, he's, you know, he can't go home to his wife. She's Saul's daughter. He can't go back to Jonathan. That's Saul's son. He can't go to Samuel, the prophet, because last time he did that, Saul found him. So he's, he's on the run. And the first place he goes is to the the new priesthood family. And uh, that's where we are. So let's read the first few verses of chapter, uh, chapter 21. And we're going to take this a bit at a time. I'm going to read the first uh, nine or ten verses, nine verses of this chapter. All right, just follow along with me if you would. First <clears throat> Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one else with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there, that name, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There's none like that. Give it to me. Okay, so here we got first... First little paragraph here. We've got David going to the house of Elimelech. Now, let me give you some, just some historical stuff so you know what's going on here, maybe a little bit more than just reading it. Uh, Elimelech, Ahimelech, is the great-grandson of Eli. Remember Eli? It's been a while since we talked about Eli. Eli was the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. Eli was the priest, the high priest, 
who didn't discipline his sons, and his sons were doing all this bad stuff at the tabernacle. And Eli is the one who had basically raised Samuel. So anyway, that's, that's Eli. This is his great-grandson, <clears throat> which is interesting for, for a couple of reasons. One, Samuel's relationship with Eli, but, but also God said he's going to, that Eli, bad stuff's going to happen in Eli's family because Eli has not been the kind of man he should have been. Well, bad stuff's going to happen in Eli's family in chapter 22. That, that, and, it, and it happens. There's a big slaughter that happens. I mean, we'll talk about this next week, Lord willing. But that this big slaughter that happens happens because of what David does here. Now, so David goes there, goes to Ahimelech. I don't know why he goes here. I don't think he knows where to go because next he's going to make it even, I mean, from our perspective, an even dumber decision when he leaves Ahimelech. But, but he goes here, maybe he goes out of desperation. He goes because he's hungry. He, he goes because he didn't know where else to go. He goes to priests. Maybe he thinks that, that the, the priesthood can save him. The priesthood can give him some sort of shelter or maybe they can give him food. I guess that's what he asked for. But he goes to Ahimelech and he and he, and he tells a lie. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know what, exactly why Ahimelech's scared. I'm guessing it's because David was basically the captain of Saul's bodyguard at this point. And so for David to come by himself without any kind of, well, without the king and also without any kind of this like royal accompaniment looks pretty weird. And Ahimelech no doubt knows and people talk, and they know Saul is out for David by this point. So I think Ahimelech sees David coming and thinking, this is not good. Uh, this isn't good. He's, he's alone. He's on the run. Uh, what am I going to do? Am I going to help him? If I help him, then Saul's going to be out for me. And I, I don't know exactly what's going on in Ahimelech's mind, but he's scared when he sees David, David coming alone. And so he, you know, he asks him, what, what, what are you doing by yourself? I don't know if David planned this, but he came up with not a very good lie. And he's going to have some contradictions in it, as we'll see in a second. David is desperate, and when you're desperate, you do dumb things. And sometimes when you're desperate, you do sinful things. Because your eyes, you take your eyes off of God and, and put your eyes on, on, on yourself. What can I do to get myself out of this situation? What can I do in this particular moment to be rescued from a very difficult situation. When you're desperate, you do desperate things, sometimes sinful things. That's what David does here. So he comes up with this lie. Basically, he says, oh, I'm on official secret business. And uh, so I had to come up myself. I've got, I've got some people, I've got some men out here in the woods at an undisclosed look. That, that Hebrew there, they tell me, is... Is, is, is kind of that kind of language. It's like, it's like David is saying, I've got men in this undisclosed look. I can't tell you where they are. <clears throat> but I'm on this secret mission. And that's why I'm coming alone. He charged me with a matter. It's in verse 2. And I can't tell anybody what it is. I've made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. That's, what is that verse 2? That, that undisclosed location. So what do you have on hand? Can, can you give me some bread, whatever's here? Can you give me five loaves of bread? <clears throat> All right, so you've got this interesting exchange here with the priest, Ahimelech. Let's talk about the bread of the presence for a minute because that's what he's got. Basically, he says, 
All right, I don't have any normal bread. I don't have any uh, secular bread, unholy bread. I don't, I don't have any normal bread. All I've got is this, this holy bread. And, and the way it worked is they had, if you can visualize a tabernacle, you had the most holy place, you know, in the inner sanctum there where the Ark of the Covenant would be. It wasn't here now, but it, it was where it's supposed to be. And then you had the outside room called the holy place. And then the holy place, you had the table of showbread. And on the table of showbread, you would have 12 loaves of bread arranged in two rows of six. And these, these big loaves of bread that have... They would, they're big loaves of bread. Some of you may know how much bread this would make. They would have about three liters of flour in each loaf. To me, that sounds like a big loaf of bread. I don't know how much. I haven't made any bread lately. I haven't made any bread ever. So I don't know how much bread that would make. But that's, that's how... That's how big these loaves are. You've got 12 of them there, two rows of six, on the table of showbread. And you probably know from, from the way Ahimelech talks here that you don't just go around you know, throwing this bread to anybody who wants it. <clears throat> if this story sounds familiar, more familiar than some of the other stories that we've read here, it's probably because this story is told in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's told there by Jesus. He refers to the story on an occasion when he had been accused once again of healing on the Sabbath. And uh, they said, you, you can't do that on the Sabbath. No, no, that wasn't it. It wasn't a healing. It was uh, plucking grain on the Sabbath. That's what it was. Uh, picking some grain on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And Jesus says, don't you remember? Don't you remember that story that you've got in your Bible about David when he was hungry? He went to the priest, and the priest recognized that there are times where you can't be a legalist about interpreting the law, and you've got to, you've, you've got to be able to understand the purpose behind the law, and God would not let anybody go hungry. God would not let anybody go hungry just because you say, I've got to keep the letter of the law. That's essentially what Jesus said there. David went to the, to, to the tabernacle and the priest took some of the bread of the presence and he gave it to David and his men and they ate it. <clears throat> so they recognized, and that's in the context where Jesus says, I would have mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is more concerned about these overarching principles than he is about some legalistic approach to the law where you say, I'm going to keep the law. I don't care if you are hungry. Anytime your theology allows you, or in some cases forces you, to belittle the needs of humanity in order to keep your theology, something's wrong with your theology. I think there's, there's a way Jesus is using this story that probably has something great to say to us about the way that we approach, the way we do ministry, the way we do church. We need to make sure that we understand there are these over, these, these, you know, these, um, these, these principles that are very, very important. And if those don't trickle down and influence the way we think about what we believe and how we practice the faith, then something's some sort of disconnect in there somewhere. Doesn't mean God didn't care about the law, of course. God, God's very concerned about people keeping the law. But he's more concerned about making sure people aren't hungry uh, and, and that they're being taken care of. 
So that's how Jesus used this story in the New Testament. It's told three times, you know, I think for emphasis sake, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice, which is a quotation from Hosea, but Jesus quotes it also in those same, same passages. So the bread of the presence, it was called, would be eaten by the priests and only in a certain location, only in a holy place. That was what Leviticus, if you're interested in such things, Leviticus 24, we're not going to turn over there. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, that's where the regulations about this bread are given. So this is what's only eaten by the priest, only in a certain location. And so Ahimelech sees, sees the situation and he says basically, well, I can let you have some bread, but I can't just, I can't just not make any requirement whatsoever. So Ahimelech says basically, you, you have to at least be ceremonially clean, basically is what he says, if you've kept yourself from women. One of the things, um, well, this is, I mean, we're all adults in here, and this is, there's a lot of this in Leviticus. And um, so you go back, we talked about this a little bit last week, you go back and read some of that clean, unclean stuff, you know, from Leviticus. A lot of that has to do with, with two ideas. One is death. So you become unclean by uh, touching a dead body, touching a dead animal, something associated with death. The other is a loss of body fluids. And so that would be associated with sex, with um, sores that are running. Um, and you got, you know, you got lots of stuff there in Leviticus that's... It's pretty interesting, but this ceremonial uncleanness is not associated with sin, so it's not something sinful, but God wanted people to recognize that when you come into his presence, there are special things you need to be aware of, and so it seems as if Ahimelech keys in on that one thing. That's why he says, you've kept yourself from women. In other words, are you ceremonially clean? I can't just give this bread to you if you are not clean, ceremonially clean, and if they had been with women, they would not be clean. <clears throat> and David says, oh, there's something interesting I want to share with you. I just, I just learned this this week. It's pretty neat. But David basically says, yeah, of course we are, because I'm on a mission, I'm on a holy mission, basically. And even if it were not a holy mission, then we would have kept ourselves ceremonially, ceremonially clean, but we're on a holy mission, so of course, uh, women have been kept from us. Which, here's the, th here's the thing I, I, I read, it was interesting. War, commanded by God, when you're on these holy missions, was considered sacred. You're on a mission from God, and if you're on mission from God, that's why David uses this language here, and this is what Ahimelech is thinking, I think. When you're on a mission from God, a, a holy mission, then you were to keep yourself clean, which meant you did not, soldiers did not have relationship with their wives when they were on military missions. They did not do it. Here's an interesting thing. So I didn't come up with this on my own. I read this in a couple of different places. But it's interesting that that kind of sheds new light, it seems, on something that happens in the very next book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11. David is now king. David's armies are fighting. 
his battles, in a world in which the king should have been at the front of his army, leading his army into battle. David is at home. And he's kind of taking it easy. Looks down and sees Bathsheba, and you know how the story goes. She gets pregnant. David's trying to cover it up. So he gets Uriah, her husband, to come home from war. And you remember that, you remember how this goes? David says, Uriah, you know what? You should just go home and just go home and sleep at home tonight. And Uriah says, uh-uh. My, my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents, and am I going to go home and be with my wife? And, and, the, and the connection here that's interesting is, is that Uriah, it, 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 it probably had something to do with what we're reading about here, that Uriah is saying, I'm on a holy mission. I, I am at war fighting God's battles. I am not going to violate what Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14 says. I'm not going to violate that. I'm not going to go home and be with my wife when I am on this holy mission. Now, the, the interesting thing, it makes what David did even more despicable when you put it against that backdrop. That not only... Not only was Uriah unwilling to go against what the law said about what you could not do when you were at war, but David, who should have been at war, was home doing what Uriah would not even do. David should have been at war and therefore not lying with women. Instead, he was at home lying with women while Uriah was off at war, and when he came home, he was unwilling to be with his wife. You see this? I think that's, that's real. I never, never thought about that before, never run across that before. But here, you see the conversation they're having. Essentially, David says, of course, we're not going to be with women. We're on this holy mission. Well, David's going to change his tune in the next book, you know, when he's king. Uh, I don't know. I thought that was, that was interesting. I'll, I'll read 2 Samuel 11 a little bit differently from now on in view of that. Okay, so that's what you've got going on. He, he takes it. You've got this little, the, narr the narrator inserts one verse here that seems a little bit out of place. And it only becomes relevant in the next chapter, which we'll study next week. But verse 7, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's foreshadowing is what that is. We only need to know that because Doeg's going to become, Doeg is a bad guy. And he's going to do some really bad stuff in chapter 22. So the narrator throws this in there just to kind of keep us wondering, I wonder why, why do we need to know about Doeg? That didn't make any sense. And he's chief of Saul's herdsmen. There are all sorts of translations of this. Um, probably doesn't mean, like, like that doesn't sound very important, the chief of his herdsmen. But the language I'm told is stronger than that. It, it, actually, um, it actually probably means he is uh, the, the chief of, of Saul's runners, who would accompany Saul, they would run beside Saul's chariot, and, and Doeg was at the front of that, meaning he was the toughest of the tough. He was, he was a bad guy, and he was trusted by Saul completely. In, in other words, Doeg is Saul's right-hand man. He's very important to Saul, and he's, he's a tough guy, which you'll see that in the next chapter. He's willing to do the dirty work. So that's Doeg, but we'll come back to that next time. You know, interesting thing, at the end of this little, little uh, paragraph here, we got uh, David saying he's got the five loaves of bread, but he says, you know, do you have a spear, do you have a sword? And 
Ahimelech says, well, I've got, I've got the spear that you, know, you took from Goliath when you killed him. It's the only thing I've got. And David says, yeah, there's none like it. I'd love to have it. So he takes it. Which then leads you to the next story. So just think about this, all right? David has Goliath's spear. You remember Goliath's nationality? He's a Philistine, was a Philistine. So, where's David going to go now? You remember the capital of the Philistine? Of Philistia? Capital of Philistia was Gath. Okay. So he's carrying Goliath's spear. Goliath was a champion of the Philistines. And he decides he's going to go to the capital city. Things are going downhill. You'll just see increasing acts of desperation here. Let's read this next section, okay? Starting in verse 10. Just six verses here. David rose and fled that day from Saul. So he really, he really is, is desperate now. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, this... Can you, can you get an idea of how, how David is feeling at this moment? Because what in the world is he thinking? I mean, why, why go to Philistia? So you think he's going to waltz in there with Goliath's spear around his belt, and he's going to go in there and seek refuge or whatever he wants from the king of Gath, the king of the Philistines, but he, but he goes in there, and immediately they recognize him, of course, and they even know the jingle. They even know the song. And that song, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And guess which particular nation David had slain most of his ten thousands in? Well, yeah, Philistia. So imagine how this is going to go over with Philistia. It doesn't go over very well. David then behaves as someone, I don't know, I don't know how you describe this behavior. Um, I mean, he's, he's kind of sunk to a new low, hasn't he, at this point? I mean, he's really low. He's desperate. He's, he's just, he doesn't know what to do. It's pretty sad. This, this man who, you know, had stood before Goliath and said, you're not going to talk about my God like that. The same man, now wearing Goliath's spear, is apparently at the city gate, or maybe the palace gate, acting like he's crazy. Um, because he's, he's kind of lost his focus, hasn't he? Kind of. He's, he's lost his focus. I like this... Um, 
This quotation, um, this is from Roger Ellsworth. He said, the man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed with faith now acts like a maniac because he's possessed with fear. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. Someone else wrote, when Achish is my best hope, I'm in real trouble. What this means with David going to Achish, going to King Achish of Gath, what that means is David has absolutely no clue what he should do. That's what this means. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know where to go. He can't go back home. He can't go to Samuel. He doesn't want to endanger his parents by going back to Bethlehem. Um, they're they're going to come to him in just a minute. But he, he, he's already been to the priest's. He's got some bread from them and a spear, but, but, where, but where does he go? He didn't know where to go, so he goes to Gath, thinking, I guess this is probably, I mean, if you had to figure this out, try to figure out what, what kind of rational reason did he have for going to Gath? And the only thing I think most people can come up with is he, he knows that Achish, the king of Philistia, hates Saul. And so he's going, maybe, he's either trying to be anonymous or he's going in there with this kind of ruse, Look, Saul is trying to kill me, and I'm the enemy of your enemy, which makes us, makes us friends. I guess that's what he's thinking. If anything is going through his mind, that's rational at this point at all. Uh, but, he, but he acts crazy. And Achish, and it's kind of funny the way Achish responds to this. Guys, you think I don't have enough crazy people in this city already? You bring me another one? Why do I need another crazy guy? I don't, I don't, need, a, I don't need another one. And the chapter just kind of ends, <clears throat> if we have time, which we may not. But uh, David wrote a couple of psalms about this time, um, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, and we may look at um, briefly. Psalm 34, in fact, it's, it has the heading that he wrote it about this time. So it's interesting to think about, to read about what David says later on about this. I want to I go quickly. We're going to reflect in a minute about what we might learn from this. But, oh, yeah, one more thing at the end of this. Let's see. In verse 13, it says, he pretended to be insane in their hands, in their hands. That language suggests he's been arrested. Okay, so when they said this stuff about, you know, this David, this is David, the king of the land, which is a expression probably meaning he's some sort of like, they're, they're giving him status he doesn't quite have yet. But... This language suggests that they, when they did that, they arrested him. They grabbed him, you know. And this is when David starts frothing at the mouth and clawing at the gate and, and uh, riding on the gate or whatever he's doing. And so he, he's in their hands. Psalm 34 suggests, David, you know, David wrote it about this time, suggests the way he got away is they, 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 they ran him out of town, you know. He escaped or they, 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 after the king said this, they basically said, get out of here. You know, just, just go. And so they expelled him from the city. So we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 22. All right? And then I'm going to pause and take the last few minutes of class to think about what we might learn from this, how this relates to you and me. Verse 1, David departed from there and escaped. You've got that language there again suggesting, you know, uh, he had to get away from them. They had arrested him. Escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. All right, we're going to stop there, but uh, let me say a couple of things about this. So David didn't have anywhere to go, you know. So he, he goes to a cave, this cave of Agilom. And from what I know of these caves, <clears throat> when I think of a cave, I think of caves I've been to that are fairly small and uh, there, were, there are caves in this part of the world, though, like one commentator said, uh, some of these caves are big enough where you could play full-court basketball without any problems. So I don't know what you have in your mind. I don't know if David was in a cave that big, but this is a, there are big caves in this area. And so you read about these 400 men coming to him. There are caves there where they could have all been together. But there are numerous caves as well if you're interested in, in that sort of thing. So his brothers and his family... His family, they come down to him. Why do you think they may have come? I mean, probably they came because if Saul has it for David, then Saul, knowing what they know of Saul, Saul's going to get rid of the rest of the family as well. So they're, they're running. You know, David's got them, the whole family in trouble. And so they come down to David. I, I think it's interesting the kind of people David has recruited now. Everybody who's in distress, everybody who's in debt, and everybody who's bitter in soul, those are the 400 guys he's got. He's the, he's the king of the ragtags, is what David is at this point. And so he's got a bunch of misfits, a bunch of people who are running, on the run, they've done something bad, they're poor, destitute, whatever. Uh, they, they're in trouble, and so they come to David. So he goes to Mizpah of Moab. You know, interesting thing, I don't know if you remember this connection, but... One of the reasons the book of Ruth is in the Bible, no doubt, is that it tells us about David's great-great-grandmother, whose name was Ruth. So she would have been Jesse's grandmother. So you got Ruth and somebody else and then Jesse and then David. You remember Ruth's nationality? Ruth was a Moabitess. And so David has Moabite blood running through his veins. And I think there's probably some of that going on here with David going to Moab and thinking, well, I went to Philistia. They wouldn't have me. Uh, I can't. I don't know else, where else to go. Where can I take my parents? Where they're going to be safe? They're not safe anywhere in Judah, and they're older, by the way. You know, they're they're, they're getting they're getting uh, fairly old now, and so he wants to make sure they're taken care of. So he goes to Moab. Uh, one commentary I was reading suggested that, you know, this reflects on the faithfulness of God. In that that whole story about Ruth, the four chapters of Ruth, and the whole Moabite thing, where she became in the lineage of David, and therefore in the lineage of Jesus that God now uses this, it's been a century ago, a hundred years later from, from Ruth marrying Boaz and giving birth to a child who then was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. God, is work, God uses that a hundred years later to save uh, David's family here, to give David a place of respite from what's going on with, with Saul. So you got that whole connection. I mean, that speculation that Moab... I mean, I'm guessing Moab knew that. The king of Moab knew that. Knew about the family connection. And, and actually, Moab and uh, Israel, are they go back to Lot, Abraham's nephew. That's where Moab came from. Anyway, that, that connection there, I think, is, is kind of interesting. 
So he, so he goes and he leaves them there, and they, they're going to stay with him for a while. And then Gad comes along. Gad's a prophet, and he, he, uh, he speaks to David. Now, we don't, we don't have much time left, but let's, let's think about a couple of things. This, why is this here? I mean, why is this text here? Is it just for history's sake? No, I don't think so. Why is it here? What did we learn from it? Why, why did ancient Israel preserve this? And why did they, what lessons did they learn from it? One, one commentator, Davis, says, the text seems to say that even in their most desperate moments, Yahweh does not let go of his servants. You see what happens in our, in the, in our chapter in five verses tonight? You got David on the run. David goes and he acts foolishly. He tells a lie, and then he goes, for some reason, to the place of his enemies and pretends to go insane. And yet, in spite of David's foolishness, God does not abandon him. He saves David through Ahimelech with bread, and he saves him from the Philistines by getting him out of Gath. Even through David's foolish acts, God saves him. God does not abandon us in our foolishness. I think that's a pretty good way of reading this text. God is faithful even when we're not. That lesson comes through again and again in the history of Israel. God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. God keeps his promises even when we are acting so foolishly. I think that's one thing that we learn here. In, in the very last verse of this that we read tonight, verse 5, indicates Gad, the prophet. God comes to David after all this. David is at rock bottom. You know, he's, he's lied. He's about to get a bunch of people killed because of that lie. <clears throat> he's acted insane. He's gone to Moab. He's now the head of a bunch of misfits. I mean, David is, is, is at rock bottom here. And what does God do? God sends him a word from the prophet. In other words, God speaks to David. And he gives him guidance. He says, David, here's what I want you to do. I wonder, knowing what we know about David, and David was, David's a, you know, he's got a good heart. But he's, he's lost focus right now, but he's got a good heart. But how David must have felt at this moment. I mean, how desperate and how miserable and how hopeless and... Apart from God, I mean, what, what in the world are you going to do? But God comes to David and says, David, I'm still here. Here's what I want you to do. A word from God. I wonder how David felt when finally, I think God had been silent for a bit, honestly. I think God had been silent. Not because God didn't want to speak, but because David wasn't listening. David wasn't open to it. And so God, sometimes when we don't listen to him, you know, he lets us go our own way and he'll, he'll let the... He'll, let, he'll put some slack in the line. He'll let us go a ways. But then God, if we'll listen, God will come, and God will respond, and God will talk, and God will speak, God will, God will, God will work. You know? And I think that's what happens here. God is, David is going his own way, and God's let him go. He's let him lie. He's let him act a fool. He's, he's let him do all this stuff, you know, but finally... Maybe in, in that rock-bottom moment. And, God, and David's going to have quite a few of these rock-bottom moments, by the way. You know that probably. 
But at this rock bottom moment, God comes to David through Gad and he says, basically, David, I'm still here. I'm still guiding you if you'll listen. Um, I'm still here. I'm going to take care of you. Even though you're foolish, even though you're, you've lost your focus, I'm still here. I think that's, that's where this little story ends. There's a transition between verse 5 and verse 6, and more bad stuff's going to happen, but um, we'll get to that next week. Out of time, but um, just, just a word about this. This is a lesson I guess you can always come back to when you're, when you're studying these narratives in the Old Testament, but uh, just to take away from this, and I already said this, but I'm going to say it again, God is faithful. Um, God, God is faithful. He's, he's always there. Even sometimes when it seems like he's not. Even when we're not doing what we ought to do, God's still there. Even when we're being foolish and faithless, God is there. That's what these narratives teach us. Even when God, God's name isn't mentioned, even when he's not speaking audibly, he's still. He's the unseen actor uh, who's moving the story along. It's always about God. It's where, where the focus ends up. Thanks so much. Hope you have a good night. Uh, read ahead, chapter 22, and we'll, we'll go there next week.